think as a country, as a nation, I don't know how worldwide it is, uh, we are definitely a death-denying culture. We're scared of it because we don't like it. We don't want to go through it. We don't want our families to go through it. We just, I guess, want to keep living forever and ever. Crossing into the dark, a companion into death. Death is something we cannot control. I think many people, probably most people, want to be in control of whatever's going on around them. We want to be in control of bad things that might happen to our person to keep it away, uh, be control of an illness we might have. We get cancer, okay, we want to get rid of that. And so we try to avoid anything that's related to death. From Religion News Service, this is Beliefs. I'm Bill Baker. The Reverend Mary Breadlaw officiates at 350 to 500 funerals a year. For Breadlaw, an Episcopal priest and former Roman Catholic nun, there's nothing more important than this painful ministry. Breadlaw is a thanatologist, certified by the Association of Death Education and Counseling. Beliefs producer Jay Woodward sat down with her in her adopted hometown of Las Vegas, Nevada. Reverend Bredlaw, thank you for joining us on Beliefs. Oh, you're welcome. Glad to be here with you. You are a chaplain in a, a world-famous city that has visitors the likes of which not many other cities have. It's an interesting thing you do, being chaplain to the coroner's office. I wonder if you could just talk to us a little bit about what it is you do and why it is that in Las Vegas it might be different from other cities. Well, I began uh, serving the coroner's office here, Clark County Coroner's Office, about three years ago. I was invited to come over there by the person who was the chaplain then, and uh, he kept trying to get me interested to come over there. I said, I, I already have way too many things I'm doing. I don't think he kept after me. So uh, I finally went over there and I just fell in love with the work there because it is so uh, sacred, so different. So, and the, the role of a chaplain anywhere is the main role. You can put it to one word and that's called listening. It's listening, reading faces, body language and asking open-ended questions if you ask any. And if, if the person you're talking with who's been having a hard time, say they went to a very difficult scene as an investigator from the coroner's office, and it was a horrific one, you know, something violent, something about a baby, uh, any of those kind of things, uh, suicide, uh, then sometimes they come back to the office and they're having a tough time. I come there a couple times a week, and I just come whenever I'm in between something else, so I never know what I'm going to walk into. So I just go in and, and I check in. I call it make the rounds. I check in with those investigators as well as with the administrative staff and the coroner himself, and, uh, and then I go into the back room to the forensics where the autopsies are being done and uh, talk with those people and... Uh, it's, it's kind of interesting how it works with them as well as the 15 years just prior to that when I was a chaplain for the city fire department. When there is something traumatic that happens and first responder, coroner type people have to come to the scene to that and, and they can't stand there and cry. They've got to do what they're trained to do. They just have to 
suck it up and, and just do their professional work. It may affect them when they come back, but when they come back to their office where there are other people in the, that are in a similar role, what they tend to do is talk with each other. So, uh, you know, they don't call me in. They talk with each other. And so I come in and I, uh, I, I can check in, in various places. I kind of know who are the people to, to check in first with. And you can tell by the, uh, what pace they're walking and, you know, just a lot of different signs. And, um, and then I'll do, and if they start to talk quietly, I know it's something that really affected them, you know, because a lot of them have cubicles. And, uh, can you think of a, a particular example of some time where you, you came in and you saw somebody that had been wrestling with something particularly grisly or just might have just, just touched them a little bit, a little deeper? I can recall uh, one person who had been out on uh, on the one October scene, and it it really affected this particular investigator. And uh, when she came in to the office the day after, and you know, just continued day after day after day, I'd go past her area, and she was at her desk and was was doing some paperwork from from other places she had just been to uh, do some work at a scene. But she had this faraway look. And sometimes I'd go past there and she's just looking out into nothingness. And so then I'd ask, uh, I never would ask her, how you doing? I mean, you can, you can see things are difficult. So I'd ask some of the people that were closest. I said, how do you think, how do you think she's grappling with all this? Oh, she's having a tough time. Yeah, the boss told her to go home for a day, and she didn't want to go. She wanted to stay there. And she came back the next day. He said, no, no, I meant go take some time for yourself. So uh, those kind of people are just, you know, just so dedicated and so into that work. They don't, I can't go home and get relaxed. How can you get relaxed? It follows you. It's part of you. So they were all uh, concerned for her. It seems like it would be impossible to go and sit in your house, in your living room, when everybody else is working, everybody else is suffering through that work, and just yeah. it ends up isolating you and yes. making you feel less purposeful, right? Yes, yes. And I think it's uh, if you're there by yourself in your own house, um, say you live by yourself and say you don't even have pets because uh, they, they really are are helpful. I have learned that and I've always loved animals, but in these emergency situations, they can really be helpful. Uh, but if you go home, okay, it's been busy, busy, you've been to a gory scene and, and now you get sent home, okay, you're having a hard time, so I want you to go home, just take some time for yourself. So what are you going to do? Go to a quiet house and now you look at the walls? That doesn't help. It, it, it actually is more comfortable to stay at your office, and even if you're staring into the wall, just being there and others are around, they might come and just, you know, tap you on the shoulder or just not necessarily say something or, or maybe just bring in something to drink. But there's that other contact of people where they know what you're feeling because they have felt those kind of things themselves. So I think it's harder to go home where it's quiet. Yeah. You're what's called um, a thanatologist, am I yes. correct? Yes. That means certified in, in thanatology, that's death, dying, and bereavement. Why 
death, if you don't mind my asking in, in such a plain term? Uh, all those end-of-life places in people's lives are, are gut-wrenching, tender-hearted, important, sacred, and uh, the death, dying, and bereavement all goes together. You can't really have one without the other. And so uh, after I had uh, gone away and, and, uh, and got my seminary degree in ministry, a master's in ministry, I started to focus mainly on end-of-life issues. And at that time, I was uh, the chaplain, the first full-time chaplain at Nathan Adelson Hospice here in Las Vegas. And so that began my work as a chaplain uh, among the end-of-life in people's stories. And I was there for seven years. And uh, then from that, uh, I, I went away to a place in Fort Collins, uh, a place called Center for Life, Loss and Life Transitions with Dr. Wolfelt. And uh, he's, he caters to, he, is, he helps train and does train uh, people who are in this kind of work at the end of people's lives. And uh, I went there eight times, flew out there eight times, and he's, he comes here now. Uh, I had him come here when I was still at Nathan Adelson Hospice. I brought him, uh, I got the hospice to bring him here. And he talked with people, and he, he became uh, a connecting person for mortuaries and hospices here in town. That training gave me uh, not just the, the wherewithal, but it, you know, for paper-wise, it was uh, the certificate in death studies, and it, it was uh, what enabled me through that and through the uh, Association of Death Education and Counseling to get that uh, verification to be considered a, a thanatologist. So a lot of, lot of studies, a lot of listening, a lot of writing, a lot of... Uh, I also did a lot of chaplaincy training. Uh, I started at uh, Loma Linda University in Riverside, California, and then came here. But it all kept revolving around the art and the ministry of listening. And um, when I'm not in, in that mode and in that service role, my other just plain ordinary life, when I'm not focused on that, is I'm, I'm a talker. And uh, I'm a widow now of nine years. And my husband, my late husband, was a firefighter for the city of Las Vegas. And he told me that when he first met me, I was coming down to the fire station to meet another fire guy that I was dating. And, and he said, you'd come down there. And the other guys told me, oh, yeah, here comes the cake lady, because I'd make a homemade cake and I'd bring it down. And it became kind of a routine. And he says, but I, I noticed that if you'd get on a certain topic, you'd get very animated. But they told me you used to be a nun and you had to be silent. And I couldn't figure those two things together. It just didn't make much sense. And he said, now that we're married, he says, I finally got it figured out. You're making up for lost time. <laughs> so tell me about that. You've moved through a lot of different stages before you became this person that you are. You've, you've been um, a Roman Catholic nun, a wife, a mother, an Episcopalian priest. You have the markings of a traveler, of a seeker, and your work really engages people on the level of where their journey is going to take them next um, through hospice work or for helping 
uh, the bereaved. How does that sort of like, uh, how does that journey attitude, that journey mindset inform some of the work you do with both people who are dying and people who have to be the ones that are living? I think all of those those places I've been at and have walked through with other people, that all informs and enriches my, my current day, uh, what I work like at the coroner's office. And uh, the other thing that I do is uh, I officiate at funerals for all the different mortuaries here in town. There's quite a few. And they'll call and say, hey, Reverend Mary, uh, do you have any opening at so-and-so time? Would you be able to come and officiate a service at this location at this time? And so if I don't have something already penciled in, then I'll ask them about the family, and then I'll contact the family. I'm usually on the phone with them for over an hour, asking about their person. And usually I start out by asking, "Was did your husband die suddenly, or had he been ill? That gets them to talking. Well, he did this, this, then we went to the hospital, we tried this, and where the doctors went through all these, all these uh, treatments. And so they begin to tell the story of how and why their person died, when that person died, and what was it that caused it. And then they've got that conversation going with me, and then I can ask about, well, how did he handle his upcoming death? Uh, how, did, how did you deal with it? Uh, what did the kids do? Uh, you say you have pets. What did the pets do? Did they come or did they stay away from him? Oh, no, they come right there. And they wanted to jump and sit on his bed all the time. So when he went into hospice, yeah, the dog went there too, and he'd, he'd sleep on the bed. And so those kind of stories just just became um, life-giving and love-giving. And uh, that's how I would find out about their person and what they were like as an individual. And that enabled me to be able to then, a day or two or three, whatever it would be, uh, later to go to that place uh, for the to officiate at the service, and I could officiate at the service in a, a meaningful way, not generic. And uh, a couple of times I've had people say, "Well, I never had a priest that would uh, call and ask questions about you know my person." Uh, in fact, when my grandmother uh, died, we went to a mortuary, and and the minister didn't even say her name. And I've had other people say. Yeah, we went, and, and a minister came, and, and they said the wrong name. Uh, so I said, well, you know, that's an insult. A generic funeral to me is an absolute insult to the person who died, to the family, to life, the value of life in general. So that's why I, I need to ask you questions. So thank you for being willing to answer all my questions. And uh, so I go through all that, and then I'm able to do that service, and inevitably, almost always, at the end of the service, family members will come up and give me a hug. They said, you helped to make it easier. It wasn't as tough as I thought it was going to be to go through this service. So thank you. You obviously have uh, a great commitment to individualizing these, uh, these funerals and really, really caring for the memory of the person, the life, and that celebration. But you're glossing over the sheer volume of the number of funerals that you've done in your life. I think... I read a profile of you in the Las Vegas Sun, and estimates were that you were doing between 350 
to 500 funerals a year for upwards of 23 years or so. So some some estimates could put that between 8,000 and 11,000 funerals in just the past two decades. Yes, yes. And, uh, you know, I, I don't look back on how many that is because there's always another one coming. Uh, mm. But one, one wonderful thing is, uh, to, to me personally, is when a mortuary would call, hey, Reverend Mary, uh, I hope you're available for so-and-so. And I said, why do you phrase it like that? Well, because you have done a funeral for this family before. It was for the wife, and now this is for the husband. There have been, I think the most that I've done is like five or six funerals over those years for particular families. And they'll, they'll ask, is that Reverend Mary still here? Because we want her to come and do it. And so that's always good. And then, and then sometimes they'll joke, and they'll because they can tell I have a sense of humor. And they'll say, now, I hope you don't take this wrong, but I hope we don't see you again for a long time. <laughs> and I said, I understand it. That never insults me whatsoever. With that kind of volume, there must be something that starts to happen, that you can start over the years that you've been able to to learn about death, about grieving, about dying, about um, watching people die, but also watching people grieve. Um, and in those kinds of numbers, I was wondering about the burden potentially of taking death and um, helping people, but it seems like that has not been the case with you. You don't sound particularly burdened by the responsibility, by the significance that you that you carry. It's a gift of significance, but it's still, uh, it must be a weight, and yet you don't seem to be too touched by it. What I, what I sense when I'm going to a location to officiate at a service is this is sacred work. I now get the chance to be helpful and comforting to people, and that is the reward in it. And so it's it's something I look forward to when I go there because I've talked with them on the phone and I'm able to meet with them and and I can see on their face how they really appreciate the way I officiate at those services. So it's it's because of its meaningfulness, it's not a burden. I think that's how I could put it best. There are a lot of traditions that include things like being... Um there are traditions that include things like the designated mourner. Um, a, a group or an individual has died, and it, the task falls to a specific individual to do the mourning for the rest of the group because there's nobody left to do the mourning who would know. Do you connect yourself with the tradition of being a steward of, 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 of this journey? Why are we afraid of death? Is that the question that I'm trying to ask you? I think as a country, as a nation, I don't know how worldwide it is, uh, we are definitely a death-denying culture. We're scared of it because we don't like it. We don't want to go through it. We don't want our families to go through it. We just, I guess, want to keep living forever and ever. Uh, so that that can be, you know, pretty. Uh, that can be a, a barrier if if you're if you come at this kind of ministry, this kind of work with people who are so sad, and you don't really want to deal with that, well, then you're not the right kind of person to be walking with people and say, well, you know, uh, say if it was a baby who died. I had a, some people get up and say, 
Well, God needed another rose in heaven. I'm thinking, right. I don't think so. God doesn't need anything, but he doesn't pluck your baby out and say, now I'm going to turn you into a rose and put you in my garden here in heaven. That's bizarre. Uh, so uh, when, when people come up with those crazy things, you know, sometimes I, there are people around and you, that come to the service and they want to help the mourner. And you can tell they're jittery and nervous. They, they don't want to say the wrong thing, but they want to say something. They want to fix it and make it better. And so they'll say some of these goofy things. So when I can sense that in the people, are, they're, they're hovering around, say, parents who've had a child die. And you can, you can just sense it. They're just like, okay, I want to do something. I got to make this better. And so in the course of talking about the person who died, uh, I'll say, now I know there are a lot of you here who are friends, co-workers, uh, you're not immediate family, and you probably are feeling uh, kind of frustrated because you don't know what to say. You want to do something to help. Just know you don't have to say anything. Being here is all. That's the biggest thing. And uh, uh, if you say, I know just how you feel, you know, you don't, so don't say that. And if you say, well, it'll get better over time, how do you know? You don't. So just say, I'm sorry. That if you want, if you want to say a word, just say, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm so sorry George died. Things like that. Mm -hmm. uh, but, and, and, and don't be afraid to say their now deceased person's first name out loud in just any old conversation because you're afraid it's going to make them feel bad and they're going to start crying and you'll be hurting them. No, it, you'll be helping them because that will be a signal to them. It will let them know that you are not forgetting their person that they love so much. So keep saying their names out loud to them on the phone, on a card, you know, the old-fashioned card for the, you can send it in the mail, not a, not a techie thing, because that is it's something uh, that you can feel and touch and you're, you can't sleep. Say if you're the, the mom and the baby has died. You can go to that card that somebody sent, and you can pick it up at 3 in the morning and look at it. Oh, yeah, I remember. That was my neighbor, neighbor across the street, and she thought so much to bring me this, and it helps. They save those cards, I guarantee you. And that means more than try to figure some magic words that will make it all go away because there are no such magic words. Just aren't. There is uh, this thing that we do, I think, with death. And I've seen it a lot, and I've, I've heard the stories about the appointment in Samara. A man goes, and he hears that death is looking for him, and he escapes to the neighboring town. And uh, sure enough, death comes and knocks on the door, and his family says, oh, no, oh, no, he's not here. He's gone, um, he's gone um, away. And death says, well, that's funny, because um, I have an appointment with him in the next town over tonight. Um, why do we personify death? Why do we make it a thing that is a it is a, something that comes for you? It's a person. It's a it's an entity. What do we want to do when we're personifying death? I think we're feeling at a loss for what to do or say because death is something we cannot control. I think many people, probably most people want to be in control of whatever's going on around them. We want to be in control of bad things that might happen to our person to keep it away, uh, be control of an illness we might have. We get cancer. Okay, we want to get rid of that. And so we try to avoid anything that's related to death. 
So I think that's, that's why it's so powerful. It's something, it's one of the very few things in life we can't control. You don't seem to be afraid of death. No, no. Um, Have I, you thought about your own? Yes, yes. I'm a cancer survivor. So uh, when I was diagnosed with breast cancer, uh, I was a chaplain then. My husband was still alive. And I got one of the tests back, and it said, we found something also in your bones. And I remember putting the phone down and running into my husband's arms and saying, I don't want to die. Because to me, you got cancer, it spreads, that's it. Uh, so I fought it, and I, I, uh, when I was getting to know my oncologist, first of all, I said, no, nobody wants to have cancer. I don't want to have cancer. I want to get rid of the cancer. So whatever uh, plan of care you have medically, you could try this first or then you could do that. Whatever it is, just hit me with everything you've got. And I'll sign a paper so you don't change your mind that says, in the middle of, say, for example, a chemo, if I come to you and say, you know, this is just too gross, it's too painful, it's too whatever, I want to stop it. Do not listen to me. I'll sign a paper that says, don't listen, just keep going with the treatment plan. And uh, they go, ah. I says, yeah, you do that or, or I'm out the door. You, you got to promise me that you'll, you'll do that. I'll do a paper. I'll go get it. I'll get it notarized. Oh, I can't, I can't do that. I said, yes, you can. Yes, you can. I'm telling you, you can. I'm the boss because I'm the patient. You're, you have the, you're the one with all the expertise. But uh, I'm trying to steer you into what, what I'm hoping for. And I went through the, through the stuff, and I was able to get through it. And supposedly, I'm cancer-free now since... Uh, it was the year of 9-11 that I was diagnosed. So things were falling apart all over the place, not only uh, in Manhattan, but uh, at the towers, but in my own life. And I thought, you know, this is, this is really not very exciting. This, none of this is very good or positive or, and, you know, I didn't really sign up for this kind of thing. But when you, when you go through a test and they say, you know, something looks a little strange here. Uh, I think I see a mass. I tell them, this is part of my wacky sense of humor. Uh, the worship at a, at a Catholic church, the worship segment is called a mass. So I said the only time the word mass is good and not bad is if you're in church. But I said other than that, so don't say I see a mass here. Just say I see something unusual. That'll be good. That's not quite as bad. It seems a little unfair. Uh, you seem to be so uh, evolved with death and approaching dying. And how does the faith intertwine with 10,000 or so funerals? And also that, that important pair, the, you know, like the potential death of yourself or the inevitable, I suppose, and perhaps that of your late husband. I think back to when I first started at Nathan Adelson Hospice, and I didn't know how I was going to respond the first time I was at uh, a deathbed. And I thought, am I going to cry? Am I going to be a useless person standing here going bubba da bubba da bubba? You know, what, what, how am I going to do? I wonder. I hope I don't just run out the door. Uh, and uh, there, uh, it, it went okay. It went okay. And not long after that, there was uh, a senior citizen lady, as my uh, grandson likes to call it, elderly. I tell him that's better than ancient or old, so you can say elderly. 
So there was this elderly patient in the inpatient unit at hospice, and she was in a coma. She had been there for a couple of weeks, and every day, night, round the clock, her family would come there. She couldn't talk because she was in a coma. She's laying there in bed. Okay, so they'd come and they'd sit around. Some of them would spend the night. They'd be on cots, and they would just talk and tell stories. Remember when Grandma used to do this, and remember when we did that? They'd just talk. And, and all at once, uh, one night I was there. I was working a little late, and the nurse came and said, Hey, can you come down to this quad over here because one of the patients is... Is, is getting kind of bad, the breathing is changing, and the family wants you to come and say some prayers. So I asked what the faith background was so I could approach it in the right way. I go down there and I said some prayers, talked to them a little bit, and uh, then they seemed fairly okay. So I went home, it's around nine o'clock. I came back in the morning, and the same nurse came back. She said, quick, before I go off duty, you gotta come back to that room. Uh, they want you to say, really last prayers. So if it was Catholic, it would you'd call it last rites in the olden days. Uh, now it's like sacrament of the sick, or there's various various other words and, and different things in other denominations. But they said, they want you to come and say some final prayers. But before you do, when you first get there into the room, they want you to tell you a story that happened during the night. I said, okay. So I go down there and I said, what is the story of what happened during the night? Well, Grandma was just laying there like she's been, and all at once her eyes opened real big, and she sat up in the bed on her own, none of us helping her, turned around and dangled her feet on the edge of the bed and sat there like it was a plain old every day and just started talking with us. You know, remember when we did this and this and this, talked about all things in her life, way in the past, current, just stories one after another. And she, they said she did that for one hour nonstop, and we'd just kind of say, oh, you know, we'd kind of interject little expressions, but she did all the talking. And all at once, in their, their private rooms, all at once she pointed to the corner of the room in the hospice and she said, do you see them over there? They said, who do you see, Grandma? And she named three people who had died years ago, different times, other family members. They're sitting right there. And they said, well, we don't see them, but you see them. That's what's important. They knew the right thing to say. Well, are they saying anything to you? Yes. What do they tell you? They said, it's not exactly your time right now, but when it is, we will be here with you. And they said, oh, that's good. That's good. That's good to know, Grandma. And then she turned around and looked at the bed and said, you know, I'm getting kind of tired. I think I'm going to lay back down and go back to sleep. And back she went into the coma. So now here I am in the morning. They told me that story. And I could, her breathing was, it's called chain stoking when it gets you know, gravelly and stop and go. It's, it, you, it's like a car running out of gas. It just gets slower and, you know, less smooth. And, and uh, she stayed in that coma. Her eyes stayed closed. As I said, the, the finalized prayers, she just got more and more calm. Everything in the room was very calm. And then how she had the strength, I don't know, but her eyes stayed closed. She put both of her hands, she reached straight up to the ceiling had her hands out, re, out stretched, and she said those three people's names she had seen the night before and said, I'm coming, I'm coming. I heard her. I was right at her right shoulder. And she took her hands and like this, as though she was grabbing somebody's hands, grabbed them, dropped her hands, and she was gone. That told me from then on, I am not afraid of dying no matter what. And I have told that story at quite a few funerals, especially if the family is really upset or, 
or if it's a suicide or a teenager or a baby when the emotions are really high and people, do you, do you think, Reverend Maury, uh, he, he took his own life. Do you think I'm going to see him in heaven when I get there? I said, of course you are. Well, you know, he took his own life. I said, yeah, things were tough. We don't know what was going on. He took his own life. That's, that's how he died. But he's with God. God understands that. And that last second before you take your last breath, you and God have that, that moment there. You know, it, it changes everything that whatever you were mad at or didn't do right or in your life. You know, God's not like that. We're judging God by uh, what we think we might do. God's not a judge like we are when we judge other people. So uh, that helps people that are at a service when they hear that story of the, of the grandma. Yeah, and they'll come up and say, I'm so glad you told me that because we've had some people come up and say, you know, I hope, I hope your person is going to recognize you when you get to heaven. I hope he's there. I hope you're going to be there. But, you know, he did take his own life. You know, what a rotten thing to say. Uh, so uh, thank you so much for saying this. And, and when I say that and I describe the story of the lady putting her hands up and saying, I'm coming, I'm coming, I, as the officiant, can look, there can be 20 people, there can be 500 in some of the big chapels. All the faces change, and they all go, oh. it, You can just see it across the whole sea of faces, and they won't ever forget that, like I won't. I don't remember the, na- the, the lady's name. I don't remember the family's name. I can see where she pointed to in that particular room. Uh, I don't remember exactly what year, but it was in the early 1990s. I started there in 1990 on April Fool's Day. Can you believe? And uh, uh, but uh, you know that that just—it's a story that—and and I say I did not get this story that I read in a book. I did not get it when I was doing my chaplaincy training at Loma Linda University. I did not get this story when I was going away uh, to get my master's degree in ministry. None of that. Uh, and it's not because I'm a priest. I experienced it. And when that happened, the whole room got very quiet and peaceful. And I just stayed there. I didn't do anything. I didn't say anything. I just stood there at the bedside. And the other family members uh, started to uh, sob a little bit quietly. And I just stayed there. And once they were all then hugging and crying each other, they were kind of coming to grips with what had just happened. At that point, I said, I'll be back in just a moment. I'm going to go and let the nurse know that your grandma has died. So I go out to the nurse's station, and I just mention, you know, I motion like this, like bring your, bring your, um, the, uh, the stethoscope. Oh. Yeah. I just went like this. They knew exactly. They brought it, and they came in, checked her heart. They said, yeah, she's gone. And they said, we thought so. And... Everybody was very calm. They were hugging each other, and and her face, her face was looked calm. The grandma who had died, and it was just a very peaceful room. And I thought, that is what everybody should be able to experience. Reverend Mary, thank you so much for your stories. Thank you for your work. You're welcome. You're welcome. It's, it's a kind of work I never dreamed I would do when I, when I was little. I was raised on a farm in South Dakota. I dreamed I was going to be a ballerina. And it didn't quite go that way. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. 
Our guest was Reverend Mary Bridlow. The conversation continues on our Facebook page, and we tweet at Beliefs Podcast. If you like our program, come review us on iTunes. Beliefs is brought to you with the support of the Bernard L. Schwartz Center for Media, Public Policy, and Education at the Graduate School of Education at Fordham University. Jay Woodward is our producer. Theme music is by Edward Billis. I'm Bill Baker. Thank you for listening.